The church where we normally worship, they've, uh, they've gone off the camp, focus. That's, um, it's a Holy Trinity church and they have a big camp together, so they've gone off to that. So uh, Daphne's with us today and uh, enjoying fellowship here. We've heard in the meeting already, several times through the prayers of the songs, about freedom. Freedom. Coming to Christ... Uh, he has come to bring freedom into our lives. We have freedom from the guilt of sin through faith in Jesus Christ. He did something 2,000 years ago that if we exercise faith in him, we are set free from the guilt. But freedom is a continuing, ongoing work of God's Holy Spirit in us. And we have to do something He did something to start this whole process off and brought us into a place of liberty. But it says we apply our hearts and minds to God's word that we enjoy more and more freedom and liberty. So freedom and liberty isn't something that God waves over us. It's like uh, he just does it somehow, supernaturally, because we come to a meeting. It is the application of the word of God to our hearts and minds and then standing in faith in what God has said about us. The two most important aspects of this is a thing called hope. Hope and faith. Hope, it says, is an anchor for our soul. When the storms of life come and problems come into our lives, our hope is anchored And so we're not afraid because we're hankered to something that is steadfast and sure. It's that what I want to talk about today, this whole topic of hope. When we started this church, 2005, we all decided together what we would call ourselves. No one gave us the name, we're hoping the Holy Spirit gave us that name. But the people agreed it would be called Hope Community Church. We wanted to be a community of God's people in the community, would, which would, who would provide hope for people who came to this place. There's little hope in the world at all. People are very frightened. There's nothing solid to fix to. Everything's movable and changing, and you can't put hope in things that move around. I would like to think you could put your hope in me, but you can't. Because I can change and I can move and things can happen. You can't put your hope in me. We can only put our hope in one. And that is in God. And it's that I want to look at this morning. In your Bibles, turn you to Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. We all know who the Holy Trinity is, don't we? Yes? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I sort of coined this the second Holy Trinity. Okay, faith, hope, and love. Uh, That's just... um, Okay, so we're going to be talking about one of the elements of what I call the second Holy Trinity. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope... May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Great little verse. Packed with stuff. 
I'll read it again. May the God of hope fill you with all hope and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. A number of things we've got to take to heart this morning and things we must practice in our life that comes out of this verse. First it says God is the God of hope. God doesn't have hope or need hope for the very reason he possesses all things and he knows all things. Therefore by definition he doesn't need hope. He doesn't have to hope in the future because he knows the future. He possesses all things. But as the God of hope, what he's saying here is it's to him we go. It's to him we put our trust. And as we put our trust in him, our hearts are filled with hope. Our hope comes from the Lord. He is the God where we get hope from. He's a God of hope because he is immovable and unchangeable. You have to put hope in something that doesn't change or move ever. And God is both of those things. Secondly, joy and peace are directly proportional to the hope we have in God. But that makes sense, doesn't it? If we have hope fixed in God, whatever the circumstances of life, it produces peace in our lives. It must do. If our, our desires, uh, our worries are, are anchored in him, and as we fix them on him, peace comes, and with peace comes joy, a deep feeling in our heart that everything is going to be alright, even the storms around us, everything's going to be alright. Thirdly, we read here that hope works in tandem with trust. Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So hope is tandem with trust. Trust is faith. And we know what Hebrews 11 and verse 1 says. It says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. So if you're hoping for something, a positive outcome, the faith that you have is the substance. It gives substance to that hope. If there is no faith, there is no hope. If there is no hope, there is no faith. The two are always working together. You cannot have hope without faith, or faith without hope. Faith is the substance, the assurance, the certainty of what you're hoping for. The fourth thing here, the power of the Holy Spirit within, it says, enables us to overflow with hope. As you're full of his spirit, because God is in there, God is the Holy Spirit within you, and God is hope, you will overflow with hope. And so God wants us to be a people who have hope and overflow with hope. I'll give you a definition in relationship to this message this morning. It's a confident assurance that God will resolve an impossible situation. So if you're facing an impossible situation, this is for you. If you're not, praise the Lord, but let me warn you, one's coming down the road. Because that's the way this thing works. 
So if you're facing one, this message is for you. God is wanting to speak to you this morning. And if not, he's preparing you for what could possibly happen. When an impossible situation arises in our life, and they do, God is there to enable us to handle it. That's what hope does. Hope does it. If you think you're in a ship and there's a storm in the ship, one of the things they do is they put an anchor down. It doesn't, doesn't send the storm away. It doesn't cause the storm to stop. But when the anchor's gone down and we know the boat is now not going to move or be ripped around by the storm, we just have to wait then for the storm to die down. So you see how our hope works. It doesn't remove things. It enables you to go through something with God. It anchors you down so you're not anxious or worried. Impossible situations arise in our life, don't they? Well, I mean impossible. I mean things we can't solve. Things, it doesn't matter which way we try, we can't fix it. Let me assure you that in every difficult and impossible situation that you have to face, as a child of God, God has permitted it to happen. He permits it. Every troubled situation, because he's a father that watches over us with a love that we can't even imagine how powerful it is. And therefore nothing happens in the world anyway that he doesn't know about. Therefore nothing happens to you that he doesn't know about and he permits it. He could stop anything. He's God. You can't take anything away from the power and the ability that he has. Therefore, he lets some difficult situations, impossible situations arrive in our life for our benefit. All we want to do is get out of them quick, move on to a more pleasant time in our lives. And I understand that. That's natural. That's normal. No one is looking for a storm. No one is looking for upset and impossible situations. But they do arise and they will come. They're beyond our ability to deal with them. God is sovereign of the universe. Do you agree? Yeah. The universe. It says that Jesus is enthroned above the universe. God is always present. God knows all things. And he's all powerful. You know that. We might not understand what God is doing and why God does things, but we can be assured and put our trust in him that his love for us will never fail or diminish or waver at any point. He loved you so much when you went into the difficult situation. He loves you the same through it and he'll love you as you come out the other end of that difficult situation. Let's have a look at the source of impossible situations. Some of them are of our making. We get ourselves into real difficult situations. It's not as though God created it or even the devil created it. <clears throat> we sometimes can't help it. Stuff in life happens. And you go, I just don't know how to get through this. I don't know what to do. I'll give you one from Scripture. <clears throat> Remember when Jesus went to the wedding at Cana in Galilee? They ran out of wine, didn't they? How embarrassing. 
How embarrassing for those responsible for the wedding, for those putting it on or providing the wine. They ran out. That's an impossible situation to deal with. They couldn't run down the road and get some more or something. It was impossible. Someone had made a mistake. Someone, maybe they didn't make a mistake. Maybe just 10 times more people turned up than they anticipated and the wine ran out in a day instead of lasting the whole week. An impossible situation to deal with. Sometimes we create them. I see also that Satan creates impossible situations. Remember it said of Peter, Satan said, I've chosen to sift him. I don't know what that sifting is. We read something of the anxiety you went through in rejecting the Lord, and that was a big part of it. But this, this impossible situation that he faced, the devil did it. We know that Paul as well, he said he was buffeted by Satan. And when he cries out to the Lord and says, Lord, help me in this situation, God says, crack on, Paul. My grace is sufficient. Just keep going, keep going. And of course, we know all know about Job. And Job's awful suffering that went on for months and months and months, losing his health, losing his family, losing all possessions, losing everything, technically, that he would have put his hope and trust in. But you know, in all these situations, I find that Satan had to ask permission of the Lord to do it. Now, that's really reassuring, isn't it? No, not one little bit. Okay. So even if Satan does come and bring things into your life, you can be sure that God has permitted it. Because he's sovereign, you see. The devil can't sneak around the back door when God isn't looking, because God sees everything, knows everything. Sometimes God creates difficult situations for us. We're not tested by the Lord in that sense of being put under a test, but we do face trials. Remember he said to Philip one day, after he had been speaking all day to the crowds, he said, Philip, will you now feed them all? He goes, sorry, that's an impossible situation. Immediately he thinks how much money he would have to get, even if he had the money, which he hadn't, where he would get it from at that precise moment, out in the countryside to feed everyone. It was an impossible situation. But God gave it to him. Feed them, he says. Give them something to eat, Philip. On other occasions, he sent his apostles out to do deliverance ministry and to heal sick people. And on occasions, they came back and they said, we couldn't do it. Now, that's a bit unfair, isn't it? To be sent to do something by the Lord, only to get there and find you can't do it. It doesn't work. You're doing exactly what he did. You're doing what you know to do, but it's not working. It's an impossible situation. He also called Peter, do you remember? He said, leave the fishing, Peter. Stop earning a, 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 an income. Trust me, I'll look after you and your family. Come, come follow me. And so he follows him. Then one day there's a knock at the door. It's the tax collector from the temple. He says, can I have my taxes? I see, Peter hasn't got any money. Because Jesus called him out of work. So he turns to the Lord and he says, we need to pay our taxes. And of course, there's a bit of a dialogue. We won't go there. But in the end, 
Jesus solves the impossible situation, tells him where to go, where he can get the money. It didn't matter where it was from. I mean, Jesus always does things, often anyway, in a supernatural way. But he just needed the money to pay the taxes, basically. I want you to imagine now an impossible situation. Here's me. Here's my impossible situation. And because God is omnipresent, and he loves me, and he's my father, he's here as well. So, he's one side of the problem, and I'm the other side of the problem. I've got an impossible situation to deal with. Now, what all men do is they try and fix it. There's nothing wrong in that. You might need to do everything you possibly can to exhaust yourself, every avenue you try, every one you go to, everything. There is no way out. There's no way out. So, step two is, because there's no way out, you start to worry. What are we going to do? How are we going to resolve this? Oh, you might have arguments at home. I don't know. You might get really thought about the whole thing. Then you find that your sleep has gone. You go to bed at night. You can't rest. You're worried about the situation. You're worried about it. All the time you see there's a situation and there's you. You can't solve it. You start to worry. You start to become anxious. You're losing your sleep. And finally you become ill. And all the time, God is standing there. He's there all the time. The God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent and loving is standing right next to you. And the problem exists between the two of you. The Bible says when you pray, you're to go to a quiet place. Um, it says in a closet. When I read this as a child, I read the Bible as it was, and I thought a closet sounded like a broom cupboard. So I had images of me sitting in a broom cupboard with the brooms and maybe the ironing board around me, and I'm praying to God. Okay. I've grown up a little since those images, and I've realised that going to a closet, a room, and shutting the door... You can do that if you like. But what it means is, shut all the other voices out that would be speaking to you. Because the devil would have something to say, and your fallen nature would have something to say, and maybe people around you have something to say. And what they do, if you keep listening to the voices, the problem just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. He says, shut the door... And just meet with me in this place. You have to involve God in your problems and your difficult situations. And you think, but why? If he loves me and he knows everything, he knows I've got a problem, why doesn't he just sort it out? How rude would that be? How rude for someone to jump in the middle of your life because they thought you had a problem and start sorting it all out. That's not going to happen. When my children were small and they had a problem, Daphne and I jumped in the middle and we sorted it out. They're sort of around 40 years of age now. 
they've still got problems in their lives. Of course they have. We all have problems. But I can't just jump in the middle of their lives now, can I, and sort it out. I have to be invited. We have to be invited. Please, Dad, can you help me? Can you talk this through with me? Whatever way they do it, because we're a stiff-necked lot, aren't we? We don't like doing that. We don't like humbling ourselves, often either to God or to one another. When I read the story in preparation of this, I went to the marriage feast at Cana. And I see a very interesting thing. I've already said there was an impossible situation. And somehow Mary was responsible. I don't think she was a busybody sticking her nose in. Somehow she had a position of responsibility. She knew the wine was running low. I don't know whether she was party to it or I don't know. Anyway, she thinks I've got to solve the situation. She knows where to go, doesn't she? She goes to Jesus and she says, they're short of wine. In fact, it's running out. Can you do something to help them? And if you look at the dialogue of Jesus, he looks as though he's rude. He's not. It's just the way that it is written. He's not being rude about his mother or to his mother. But he uses this word. He says, why do you involve me? Isn't that interesting? See, while Jesus sat there, he knew the wine was running down. He knew. He knew what was going on. But he was not involved. It was only when Mary, who had a position of responsibility, came and said, we are running short of wine. Can you do something about it? And he goes, you're now involving me. I am involved. See, the minute you share your problem or situation with your father, he's involved. If my sons came to me, any one of them, and said, Dad, we're in a problem. Can you help us? And I'll go clear off. You're old enough now. Sort your own problems out. No, no earthly father would do that. He was half decent. But God could never do it. So praying is so vital because we involve him. He's involved from the minute you share the problem with him. He's involved. See, the problem... God, me. God, you need to get involved in this problem because I can't sort this out. I need you to come and help me in this situation. How are you going to pray? Because that's what I'm telling you to do, isn't it? How are you going to pray? Oh, God. <laughs> We're in a real mess. Oh, stop it. Stop your nonsense. If my boys came to me like that, I'd say, oh, shut up. Blow your nose, sit down, and tell me what the problem is. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? You know what I mean? Don't, don't, none of this, you know. He wants you to come and talk to him. He's your father. He loves you. He's only too willing. It's in his nature. It's in his character. It's who he is. I found the best way to go to God and speak to God is to speak to the nature of who he is. And we get his nature and his character from his word. I've been in prayer meetings with people 
And all they ever do is pray the word of God. I mean, you think they know the Bible inside out and back to front. It's verse after verse after verse after verse. And I used to think, oh, that's a weird way to pray. But now I've learned it is a good way to pray. Because God has shown his character, his nature to us in his word. And so when you come to him on the basis of what he said, you come to him on the basis of his nature. He says this in Psalm 39 verse 7. This is David speaking. David was good at this. But now, he said, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. You understand? We learn how to talk to God from the word of God. And David was good at this. So we would learn much from reading the Psalms and talking to God in the same way that David does. He pours out his heart to God. Usually by the time you get to the end of the psalm, he's speaking out the solution to the problem or the fact that he's trusting implicitly in the Lord. I'd go on praying like this. I read story after story in your word about those who, now I'm going to quote Hebrews 11, 33 to 38, about those who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised for life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. What a powerful couple of verses. You go to God on the basis there is a God who through history has watched over his saints. He's watched them go through this stuff again and again and again and again and again. And in many cases, he's delivered them. He's set them free. He's released them. He's broken into situations. He's closed them out of the lions. He's, he's conquered mighty armies against them many times. Not always, though. Sometimes they went through a lot of suffering. And in cases, they lost their lives. So this is how I would continue my prayer. You were with them, God, giving them hope in impossible situations as you are with me now. If there is something you expect me to do, tell me what to do, God. Tell me clearly and plainly what to do and I'll do it. If not, I will simply put my hope in your unchangeable and unalterable nature and your word. The God of this book is the same God who listens to your prayers. He doesn't always deliver from every situation, but many times he does. I would then quote Romans 8 and 28, that in all things God, you work 
for the good of those who love you, who have been called according to your purpose. I love you, God. And whatever is happening, and however long this impossible situation lasts, my purposes are the same as yours. So, if it is in your interest to resolve this impossible situation in my favour, I perfectly understand. But if it is not, I'm trusting in you. And in addition, your timing is perfect. See, problems go on sometimes, but they don't. They last the perfect time they're meant to last because God is sovereign. He knows how long the problem will last. He understands that. Our hope is in two unchangeable things, it says in Hebrews. Our hope is in the very nature of God himself, who cannot change. His nature is in here, and what he has said in here is a picture of his nature, and it cannot change. There is no shadows with God. He's straight, he's honest, he's true, he's faithful. That's his nature. We trust in his nature. The other thing we trust in is his word. His word. His nature we discover in this word, but his word to us is vital and important. When God speaks, listen to this, and he always speaks. You can't shut him up. He's speaking all the time. All the time. But the trouble is we're not listening all the time. We just listen as and when. He doesn't stop speaking. He can't stop speaking. He speaks and speaks and speaks and speaks and speaks. We have to learn how to hear the voice of God when he speaks. And if he says he'll take care of things, he will. How do I know he will? Because it's impossible for God to lie. End of story. Imagine you're going through a difficult situation and you have a dream. And in this dream, coming from God, all the problem is resolved. You get up and you say, praise the Lord. It's over. It's over. Now, it might take another six months. A year. But it's over. Because God can't lie. Once he said, I'll solve the problem, he's got to solve the problem. And how can he say it? Because he knows the end from the beginning. And if he wasn't going to solve the problem, he wouldn't have said anything. Because he can never tell lies. You thought, oh, I thought it was about me and believing. No, 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 no. If God has said it, God has said it, and that's the end of it. It will come to happen. It will take place. God will do what he said. But if God doesn't speak, please don't assume. Because God won't do it because you assume it. He's got to speak. You know, his nature is unchangeable and his word cannot lie. With those two, your hope is in the Lord. Do you understand? Your hope is in God. If we can't be bothered to read his word, we'll never know his nature. And if we can't be bothered to listen to him, you see, we're good at telling him what's wrong. The problem is we don't listen for the answer. Listen, 
it's more important you listen than what you say. God knew about your problem before you took it to him. I know, he, I just said he wanted you to ask him, but listen, we need to have shorter prayers speaking to him and longer ones listening to him. In fact, the whole of the rest of your day once you've prayed about your business and everything is listening to the voice of God. God, speak at any time. Your servant is ready to hear what you've got to say. You don't have to stay on your knees for 24 hours. I'm not saying that. But have an openness to hear the voice of God. It's vital to our lives. I'm going to give you what I believe is the greatest example of hope in the New Testament. And it surrounds the life of Jesus. Jesus, remember, when he was in Nazareth, that's where he grew up. Uh, He really upset the people, didn't he, one day when he stood inside the synagogue there and he said, the scripture is fulfilled today that I am the one that God has sent. And they wanted to throw him over a cliff. He leaves there. He never goes back there. He starts his home now in Capernaum. Well, it's a base, really. Quite possibly he lived with Peter, because Peter lived in Capernaum. From there he would make visits all through Galilee, like small missionary trips, visiting all the different villages and towns, and he would share the gospel with them. It was a a tremendous first year of opportunity, the positive time of his ministry. Wherever he went, people's hopes were raised because they either heard about what he had done in other places or even some people had seen what he had done come back and said this man is something else we've seen him raise the dead and cast out demons and heal the sick not just one or two but as many as came to him he healed them so you can imagine in their situation in their impossible situation their hope was right raising all the time and he lived in Capernaum wouldn't you have wanted to live in Capernaum in those days Because even when he went on his missionary trips, he always came back to Capernaum. There was always a chance to get him again if you missed him the first time. He went on an excursion to the area of Gadira. That's where he set that man free with all those demons. Remember, he had a legion of demons. And it says in uh, Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 40 to 56, if you want to read this when you get home, uh, he comes back and the people in Capernaum are so pleased to get him back. They've been waiting for him to return. And so as soon as he's back in town, he don't get a minute's rest, does he? They're on him. And, and the people have seen miracles, you see, in Capernaum. It was in Capernaum that they, they pulled the roof open, you remember, and, and let the guy down, and, and the guy was healed. Whether that was Peter's house, I don't know. Peter wouldn't have minded one little bit. And we know that in the, in the synagogue at Capernaum, he delivered that man. And it says in the evening, the whole village, the whole town, came to the house where he was. So everyone knew, everyone had seen the miracles, and there were other miracles beside While he's been gone, Jairus, who is the synagogue ruler, his daughter has become sick. I mean, really sick. She's close to death. And he is so pleased that Jesus is coming back. Because he knows it'll be all right. 
I hope she hangs on until Jesus gets back. It'll be all right when, when Jesus is back. And so he hears, Jesus is back in town. And so he, he makes his way to where he is. And there's a great crowd and they're all pressing in on him and they all want stuff. And he pushes his way through. He was probably allowed to come through as the ruler of the synagogue. They weren't that rude, although some might have elbowed him. I don't know. Anyway, he gets to the front where it is. And he starts to explain the situation. My daughter is close to death. Can you come? Of course he says, of course I can come. And then we read on, if you read that passage. He's delayed, isn't he? Remember by the woman who's touched the hem of his coat. And then he stops and he says, who touched me? And, and, and then there's this dialogue and the woman explains things. And whether anything else happened, I don't know. Then someone comes, maybe one of the household of the, the ruler of the synagogue, and he says this. He says, your daughter's dead. Your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. You must stop and look at this man. See, I stopped to look at this man when he caught that news. Can you imagine? I mean, when you get a shock, all the blood drains from you, doesn't it? If you're medical, I'm not, I don't know. But it looks like all the blood is draining from your very face. You go white and you start to almost fall over, can't you? That man, hope, drained out his body. See, he went high in hope, knowing that Jesus could do something about it. And when he heard that she was dead, every ounce of drop, drop, hope, every drop of hope, it drained from his body. He felt shaky. I'm sure the servants around him, they just held him up so he didn't fall to the ground. Oh. Then Jesus turns to him. And I can't emphasize this enough. Jesus spoke to him. You see, Jesus has got to speak. He's got to speak in your life. He's got to say something to you. And what does he say? He looks this man who is, he's crumpled. He's, he's can't hear anything. He feels so, so hopeless and so useless. He says this. Don't be afraid. Can you imagine those words? Jesus, Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He says this, just believe. Just, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. And she will be healed. Can you see this man? I mean, it's just powerful. I mean, if he was white, he was red now. It's as though the blood was running through his veins and his body again. If hope drained from him, it was definitely coming back. But before he had a hope in Jesus, now he's spoken. It's like, it's done! It's done! It's done! It's done! He 
his words drove from the heart of that man all fear, all darkness, all dread, all hopelessness. It was gone. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Just believe. Just believe. That's why I come to church and sing my head off. Because there's a Jesus said, don't be afraid. Just believe. Just believe. Just believe. That's why you're here. You're not here for any religious purposes. Religion kills us. You're here because you know the God of the universe can speak into any situation in your life and say, don't be afraid. Just believe. He must speak. If he doesn't speak, you'll continue in fear and you'll become ill and sick with fear. When you turn to God, it'll be the first thing that he ever says in any situation. Fear not. When you pick up this book and read it, I've never counted it, they tell me it's 365 times it says in here, fear not. 20 would have done me. Fear not, Phil. Fear not. Fear not because it's in my nature. It's in my nature to turn situations around. Fear not, Phil, because I am the God of the universe who can do all things. Fear not, Philip. Fear not. Fear left him as quick as light expels darkness. He's up. He's down and he's up again. Fear not. It is the words of the eternal, the unchangeable, the immovable, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-loving, the king of the universe, your saviour and your friend who said, fear not. Do you love Jesus? Oh, Daphne, I'm sorry. I love Jesus more than you. You're the most loving person who walks on this planet as far as I'm concerned. But I tell you, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Jesus can change everything. Jesus can resolve every situation in your life. You go, I don't know why I ever moan. I don't know why I ever complain. Turn every, every second of moaning into prayer. Every second of groaning into worship. Because the one who has all power, the friend of the universe, the friend of yours, is there. One word from the master will ignite hope and stimulate faith. There's a lot more to say about hope. But that's all I want to say this morning. I'll leave you with this verse. Um, we don't sing as many hymns as we used to. So some of you people will know this, I'm sure. When darkness seems to veil his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Praise God. Praise God.
Are you facing a troubled situation? I want you to stand. Don't make one up. If you're not, praise the Lord, you're not. But if you are, I just want you to stand. If it's a troubled situation and you don't know the way out of it, it may be a loved one, it may be a financial thing, it might be the, the salvation of somebody. It's troubling and you can't get it fixed. You can't get it fixed. This word was to encourage you that the fixer, the fixer, will come and fix it. I never said he'll give you the answer that you want. He might carry you through a very difficult situation, but you will know that he's there, and his strength and grace is there to carry you through. I just want to pray for each one of you this morning. And you know what this situation is. And now you can reach out. You can throw the anchor of hope into God. Into the eternal, immovable, unchangeable nature and character of God. If God hasn't spoken to you, you stay with it until he speaks into your situation. And you can put faith in what he says because he cannot tell you a lie. Don't make up the answer. Listen to the voice of God. Heavenly Father, I just pray for everyone who has stood this morning. They're your children and you love them. You love them so much. And Lord, I pray, as they throw the anchor into you, that anchor of hope, and they fix it firmly into you, and they tell you the problem again. If they told you it before, they're going to tell it again, Lord. And they're going to expect that you speak to them in their hearts. And when you've spoken, they're going to lay hold of the promise. And they're going to find that faith, faith will rise in their hearts and faith will be the substance of things hoped for. And because it's impossible for you to lie, you will take them through. You will deliver them from. You will resolve the situation. You will perhaps turn an impossible thing into a possible thing as they reach out to you and hold on to you. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you that you are the God of all hope. And we bless you and praise you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen, God. Amen.